Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. This week we are covering The Glass Menagerie, or as we're referring to it, The Time That Being Gay Ruined a Perfectly Good Dinner. So this play was first performed in 1944 towards the end of World War II. What are we drinking today? We are drinking a Ramos Gen Fizz, which was created by a stick in the mud named Ramos, who decided that cocktails need to be punishments, and decided to make a vaguely alcoholic egg cream. That is that is bizarre, but not bad. I'm glad you like it. There's like a whole layer of foam on the top of it. Yeah, bizarre, but not bad is a good way to describe it. I think yeah. this might be the best cocktail I've ever made. I'm done. I'm not going to keep drinking it. <laughs> We didn't introduce ourselves. We did not introduce ourselves. That is Victoria. Hi, and that's Amanda. Hello. We this is what happens when you had to shake a cocktail for five minutes straight. Yeah, so why don't, why don't you walk our listeners through what you just had to do? So Aramos Gin Fizz is essentially, a, again, like I said, like an alcoholic egg cream, which is a milkshake with egg and cream and misery. So to make this emulsification happen, which will be all over our Instagram, I had to shake in a cocktail shaker egg white cream, gin, and a bunch of other things for several minutes. Ramos's original recipe called for 12 minutes. I don't know who has time for that. Yeah, we were talking about how, what kind of bar would do this other than one that has like four seats, three bartenders, and yells at you for asking for a Cosmo. Right, like I can't think of like any of the bars that I go to that anyone has time to shake one drink for 12 minutes. Also, I spent a very long time looking for orange blossom water. Which is apparently not a thing that exists anymore in America, and I just cheated and used triple sec. But yeah, um, even looking on Amazon, it was one of those things where you had some choices, but mm-hmm. it wasn't going to be here for like another week and a half. So yeah, How's, I'm glad that you like your alcoholic egg cream. It is pretty good. I like it. The original recipe that we were looking at, it called for dry gin, powdered sugar, heavy cream, fresh lemon juice, lime mm-hmm. juice, and egg white, and then like we were talking about the orange flower water or orange blossom water. And then you top it with either soda water or tonic. We mm-hmm. chose tonic yep. because w- why? Uh, because I'm trying to prevent malaria. Tonic has quinine in it, which is how the British Army colonialized Africa and discovered that you can use a gin and tonic as medicine. Just be advised that there are some people who are very allergic to quinine. There are. So if you don't know if you're allergic to quinine, you maybe stick with salt. soda. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll use like club soda or seltzer water. Those are good alternatives. Thank you for joining us for cocktail talk. I had to get off the chest that I've been shaking a cocktail for five minutes. <laughs> There's also a small boomerang image of it on the Instagram. Yes, there is. It looks good. Dare I say my arms look good. <laughs> getting tough. Getting buff. Heck yeah. The whole stupid new year, new you stuff. New year, same petty me. <laughs> so the plot of Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie. Right. And, um... I think we need to say up front is that um, we're going to be using a lot of um, interesting terminology to describe Tennessee Williams, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, and also we're going to be using some words to describe like disability and mental illness that uh, might sound coarse or not politically correct. Either one, these are Tennessee Williams' terms that he's using, mm-hmm. or two, we're saying this from a place of humor and love, but also um, from support and from care. It's absolutely. It's also really weird because we both obviously read this in high school. We did. And when you read this in high school, they make you do this weird dramatic reading thing. They do. Like the popcorn style where you have to call on your fellow classmates. And I think we both played Amanda Wingfield. When we our... did. We did. We did. Um, I remember I went full southern accent because I lived in California and nobody thought that I would get killed for doing it. And I just read her straight because that was just my mom. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda's kind of that um, that either mom or southern aunt that you have that every single holiday asks you why you're not married yet. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, ooh, there's also gin. <laughs> there is. So the plot is it's pretty straightforward. A... For, now former merchant marine Tom comes back to revisit his memories of his sister and his mother, um, his very complicated relationship with his family. And as he's addressing the situation to us, he you know, very clearly tells you, this is my memory, this isn't necessarily accurate. Amanda Wingfield is their mother. She is Southern. Very Southern. <laughs> 
very southern and is constantly reliving her glory days in Blue Mountain. Her daughter, Laura, so Tom's sister, has a disability. Yes. And she's referred to as crippled multiple times in the play. Right, and it's kind of a vague disability, and it does seem like it's almost a little bit uh, psychosomatic, so to beleaguer in Sherlock because I'm angry about it. (laughs) Uh, It does seem a little bit like, not to say that she isn't disabled at all, but like maybe it's not really that bad. And we'll go into some of the reasons behind that from Tennessee Williams' like actual life. But really, honestly, the only time they ever really address it is when they're talking about the fact that she wears or wore a leg brace in high school mm-hmm. and there's some stage direction about it. But Tennessee Williams even said he preferred when actresses would play it like it was a mental issue versus a, a physical actual deformity. physical deformity. Right. And that's always how I've read it more, is that it being more of a, this is going to sound terrible, like a weakness of mind rather than like a weakness of body. So Laura has been, was enrolled in a school to learn how to type and become an office worker, and she decides after throwing up in class that she's not going to go back, Yes. but she's going to keep making it look like she's going to class. And her mother finds this out, throws a huge fit, and then suddenly realizes that her daughter has no real options, so the only option she has is to get married. Yes. So she starts this whole campaign to try and get Tom to find a boyfriend for his sister. A gentleman caller. A gentleman caller. And they end up having a very nice dinner with a young man from the warehouse named Jim O'Connor, who just so happened to go to high school with Laura, and just so happens to be the man that she was desperately in love with in high school. Right. Which is always awkward. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't imagine my aunt, like, calling over one of my, like, high school crushes. Like, oh, we happened to find this poor sap. Like, oh, God. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> so after going through this this very long, elaborate dinner where Amanda has decorated everything, put on clothes from her past, and tried to be a super southern charming hostess, um, Jim ends up talking to Laura privately, and you find out that he is not free and available. He is actually engaged thus breaking Laura's heart and mm-hmm. then leading to Tom just saying screw it I'm out. Yeah. Yeah, that that I mean that's a very nice way of putting it. Yeah. We're we're going to talk a lot about Tom because he's our point of reference for this and uh, I think we both have a lot of feelings about him. Interestingly enough, um and we'll go into this too. Tom is basically just Tennessee Williams. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a lot more about authorial intent which we tend to do on this podcast quite it's a bit. important it is important who's gonna fight us on authorial intent not ap students nope <laughs> not joe rowling either <laughs> so the stage directions in this are pure poetry i'm um, if you had a chance to read the play which we definitely recommend that you do absolutely yes there are just entire passages where tennessee williams gets out a lot of his feelings and just starts talking about things like in the beginning when he's describing the initial setting the quote is the scene is memory and is therefore non-realistic memory takes a lot of poetic license it omits some details others are exaggerated according to the emotional value of the articles it touches for memory is sealed predominantly in the heart the interior is therefore rather dim and poetic he could have just said that the set was dim yes but i think it does give a lot of credence because especially as you read this it starts to feel a little bit like the sun also rises oh absolutely where this is just an aggressive fan fiction Mm-hmm. Um, which we will go into further uh, later. But uh, the more you get that feeling, um, it is nice to kind of say that at the front of him kind of copying to this being an aggressive fan fiction, mm-hmm. as opposed to Hemingway, who doubles down like, no, this is just how things happen to be. Kitty's not you. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never written anything about the people in my life before. Not in, like, every single book ever. <laughs> So Tom very quickly gives you the setting. Um, He refers to it as that quaint period, the 30s, when the huge middle class of America was matriculating into a school for the blind. So at this point in time, there's war in Spain with Guernica. There's labor riots all over Chicago, Cleveland, and St. Louis. Yes. Things are not financially great in the country, Mm -hmm. and people are desperately trying to change what they had come to be accustomed to in the 20s. Accurate. Accurate. Um, Let's talk about this plastic theater term yeah. that uh, we used 
and that uh, Tennessee Williams used in this instance. And Tennessee Williams is really well known for using the concept of plastic theater. So mm-hmm. if, if you ever hear it, it, that term brought up, just chime in and say Tennessee Williams and people will think you're really smart. Yeah, they um, will. <laughs> it's the use of props or staging to impress upon the audience some abstract ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, it often seems unrealistic. It's very blatant and symbolic. And it usually just adds to the drama. Well, and it, it damn near centers on magical realism at Absolutely. times. I mean, you have that a little bit. Um, I skipped ahead over Catholic symbolism to talk about this, but like in places where like the Virgin Mary appears like over Amanda Wingfield, and it's like, is that a painting or is this a hallucination? What are we talking about? And a lot of the stage directions refer to different you know images being projected onto the wall right. to um, the portrait of Tom's father lighting up at certain moments right. when he's very much acting like his dad words going up on the screen um even there is a song that's just referred to as the glass menagerie which is included in the stage directions what's really interesting is if you watch any of the movie versions they tend to include that in as well yes um it, it is a it's an interesting way to do theater but i think it's really really fun because yeah like the fact that it does border on like magical realism of what is real, what is not real, what is diegetic, what is non-diegetic, things like that. Right. Film terms. Ooh, we're getting fancy now. Heck yeah. So we already talked a little bit about Amanda. Obviously, she has passed her her prime. Not this Amanda. I'm great. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, Again, if you live in the South, you probably have a relative or know of somebody's relative who's like this, um, just constantly reliving the... Well, back when I was dating, I had 17 boyfriends, and they were fantastic, and all of them were rich. And all of them had the hots for me, and I was so hot, and just, we'll we'll talk about this more in depth uh, later, but there's a reason why this play did nothing and everything for me, because it didn't feel like a play. It just felt like me at home with my family. Right. Um, Laura Wingfield, as we've talked about, is the sister. She's going to be that awesome introverted Instagram star who just has her pictures of her glass animals all the time, but would be perfectly happy just having only food, home delivery, and not having to talk to anybody, but just being able to play her records. You know I hate that internet introvert, though. I know. Of, like, that internet, the way the internet views introversion is, like, this hobgoblin doesn't leave the house, only orders Uber Eats. And I say that being an introvert, considering that I was just on stage last week. <laughs> um, I've always taken umbrage with the idea that an introvert is just this uh, hermit. See, I'm, I'm speaking from a place of being that hermit. <laughs> I mean, I am too, sometimes. But, like, I have it. We both have jobs. We do. We leave we, the house. We are, I am in your, you know, home. <clears throat> That's true. I had to leave. I had to get in the car and talk to several people to get things done. So quite a few scholars, um, and Tennessee Williams, to my knowledge, never really denied this. Laura is based on his sister, Rose. And Rose spent a lot of her life in mental institutions. She was forced to have a prefrontal lobotomy after being diagnosed with schizophrenia. Which would not have helped. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Tennessee Williams was horrified by the fact that his mother had encouraged his sister to have a lobotomy. Um, he left a huge portion of his estate to her so she could continue to receive mental health care after he died. Um, and what's interesting is the name Rose does come back to Laura's character as she's often referred to as Blue Roses because of a nickname she had in high school from Jim. Uh, because she had pleurosis, which, which is, is a not, stretch. not super common. It's not. I wish he would just admit that this is just his life. Oh, no, it's straight up his life. Because I, I read The Lady of Larkspur Lotion, too, and you have uh, the writer, the poet, and that, and it's just, like, this, like, flamboyant birdcage, like, draped in silk gay man. <laughs> and I'm like, can you just say this is you? Well, what's even interesting, too, is Tom Wingfield. Tennessee Williams' real name was Thomas Lanier Williams. Yes. So he didn't even change his real name. Um, Tom Real. In, in, the <laughs> in the play. Um, he, both he and the character Tom both work at, worked in a shoe warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both miserable with their mothers and sisters. They both had a father figure, which was not an outstanding human being. No. Tom refers to as the gentleman caller as the most realistic character from the play, and I disagree with that. I also disagree with that. I mean, he's talking about how you just have to have 
um, you know, some gumption and you just have to have, you know, a strong personality and take classes and do this kind of stuff. But he still has like a job that's just one step above Tom's in the warehouse. Yeah. And I always struggle with the idea that like meeting a man will fix you. I absolutely struggle with that too. Cause uh, it's not true. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a lie. <laughs> oh, uh, this whole play is just so frustrating to read in places. Um, so before we get into authorial intent, I think we definitely need to spend some time talking about um, the fact that Tom is all of us. Tom is all of us. Tom is, this is how it went down. Let me color it so I look a little bit better than I really was. Yeah, but but not even. Like, he, he reminds me so much of myself, of just, like, melodramatic, but it's completely earned. Um, there's one line that I think everyone can quote and love from this, is that whole... I will rise, but I will not, not shine. shine. <laughs> so my mom used to bust into my room in the morning and do that and be like, I will rise, but I refuse to shine. And like, she would misquote it. So for years, I didn't know it was from this play. Right. And then I was sitting there watching one of the movie versions of it and went, oh my gosh, that's, where that's what my from. mom has been doing for my entire life. Yeah. I, I feel like I say a version of this uh, every day. It's like, how are you doing? It's like, I'm alive. I'm physically here. One of my favorite lines is Amanda's when she's comes in and she's just found out that Laura's not going to school anymore. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I'll be all right in a minute. I am just bewildered by life. So that's like Same. my go-to now whenever somebody really makes me upset. I'm just bewildered by life. Let's just all be super overdramatic. I mean... The, the, the funny thing is, is that at least with a lot of these characters, it does feel somewhat earned. It does. It's not quite like Hemingway, where, like, I don't know why you're having any of these feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, at least with a lot of these characters, and with Tennessee Williams himself a little bit, a lot of this emotion does feel like Tom has every right to have daddy issues. Amanda Wingfield, I don't even want to think about the societal and patriarchal pressures that made her what she was and what she is. You know, I don't have to think about it. I experienced it being Southern as hell. And what's interesting, too, is what was her greatest fear growing up was being alone mm-hmm. and not having her 17 gentleman callers. Mm-hmm. She ends up marrying somebody who turns her into a single mom. Yep. Which is, I mean, by Southern standards, uh, the most scandalized thing you can be. Right. Is to be poor and a single mom. And she's both. Especially in the 30s. Gasp. Gasp. So... I'm going to go into a little bit of history of Tennessee Williams so we can go further into authorial intent. So he was born in Mississippi in 1911. He died at the Hotel Elysi. I actually looked up how to pronounce that, so if it's wrong, I blame the internet. I honestly in my head heard the Hotel Elysi and I got really excited. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So he did die in New York. The official cause of death was choking on a plastic cap of a bottle, which probably came from a nasal or eye solution. But alcohol and drugs were expected to be part of that problem as well. He really liked his alcohol and drugs. He really did. Um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. He was gay in a time period where it was not okay to be gay and everything needed to be underground. And also a really screwed up childhood. Yeah. Oh, I I was not said in putting down Tennessee Williams. He really liked his drugs and alcohol. Yeah. We... During the process of research for this, we've been referring to him as Uncle Tennessee. Yes. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So it is, as as you had noted, um, pretty high on the list of the saddest ways to die. Yeah, that's a... So, fun story about me. I've always said if I die uh, unspectacularly, my friends are to change the cause of death to mauled by bear. I like that. Yeah. So if I die, like, by, like, falling down a staircase or something, uh, you're to change the cause of death to mauled by bear. Mauled by bear. Got it. Uh, so I, I feel like that's one of those instances of like, choked on a bottle cap. No, uh, assassin dropped bottle cap into throat or something. Ooh, I like that. So his official cause of death is assassin dropped bottle cap down throat. Yeah, there we okay. go. Okay. Um, his dad was a drunk shoe salesman who liked to beat Tennessee. He was very sickly and referred to at that time period as an effeminate child. His mom hated being stuck in the, the marriage she was in. Mm-hmm. She doted on Tennessee. Um, and Williams definitely pulls from these sources. You you see that pretty clearly in this play. Right, and I, I'd be curious to know about, like, effeminate by whose standard. True. Because, I mean, like, there are definitely, like, some uh, effeminate children. We we've all we all have that one friend or cousin. Uh, but especially by those 
that era standards, I'd be curious to know, like, effeminate in what in what way? In 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 how way? Mm-hmm. So Tennessee ended up working in the same shoe factory as his dad, well, same warehouse, mm-hmm. and he was forced to do this by his dad. His dad was like, you're going to earn a living, and you're not going to sit around the house and be a wuss. So you see a little bit of that with Laura. Um, he ended up, Tennessee Williams ended up having a nervous breakdown at 24 and leaving the factory. And you'll see a little bit of that kind of written into Tom's character. Where you'll see a lot of that written yeah. into Tom's character. A little where, bit. <laughs> where he's like getting ready to, to break down and... Even when Jim's going, yeah, you're probably going to get fired. He's like, good. Excellent. (laughs) So one of the really interesting things I found out was that in his will, Tennessee wanted to be buried at sea so he could be near the poet Hart Crane. And if you watch some of the interviews with him, um, there's entire interviews where he just goes, let me talk to you about this poet Hart Crane. Um, So his wish was to be – or. Tennessee's wish was to be sewn up in a canvas sack and dropped overboard from a ship. However, his brother was like, no, we're not going to do that, and buried him at Calvary Cemetery in St. Louis, where his mom is buried. I would like to start a petition to exhume Tennessee Williams and give him his burial at sea. It's a little bit kind of like the Dorothy Parker wish, where she didn't really want any fancy fanfare or really anything, and then... You know, her caretaker, who we'll go into at a later podcast, decided to do what she wanted to get as much attention as possible. Yeah. uh, Not that I'm saying that Dakin Williams did that for attention. But did that for attention. (laughs) So the publication rights after Tennessee Williams' death were donated to the Episcopal School, the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. And when his sister ended up dying, she bequeathed the seven million that he left her to the same estate at the same school. Um, and he was a little bit of a murderino. I was reading a book called Follies of God, which is fantastic. It's about all the women that Tennessee Williams ended up, you know, writing for and taking inspiration from. And Lillian Gish, who plays Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire, she lived in the house that would become the Tate murder house in Los Angeles. And Tennessee Williams never let her forget it. He kept bringing it up every time they saw each other. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is. Also, can we get a more southern name than Blanche Dubois? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How do we want to go into more authorial intent? Uh, I think that we're we're glossing over a big part of Tennessee Williams, we which are. is uh the fact that he was gay. Yes. He was very gay. <laughs> Remarkably gay. Um which leads to some very uh, problematic parts of his uh, existence, including um, some men that were probably too young for him, mm-hmm. and a little bit of fetishization of uh, mostly men of color, which we're not going to talk about because I'm a person of color, and I don't like it when people use 15 words to describe uh, tan skin. There you go. Um, but I, I think his sexuality played such a huge part in his writing, especially when you have these characters that are sort of outsiders or they think or um they just there's this restlessness to them and especially when you're held down by the expectation of southern society sometimes you place that uh you project that feeling into just a general ennui a general restlessness but then you realize you know you you go to hollywood and you realize that you're you're a gay (laughs) (laughs) and audrey wood his agent was actually the person who encouraged him to get out of the south and go to l.a and we were joking about this the other day that L.A. makes you gay. It does. Um. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> so, which is, is, it's just very tongue-in-cheek. But um, that was really the first time that he'd been able to explore his sexuality a little bit more mm-hmm. and have, um, you know, there were underground clubs. There were, you know, if people kind of figured out you were in the family, they would show you where to go and right. talk to you about who it was. I mean, Tab Hunter was gay. There were mm-hmm. so many people that were gay. and But it was always under wraps, and it was always one of those things where the studio did as much as they could to cover it up. And what was so revolutionary then about Tennessee Williams was his uh, was his desire to not be as closeted as others mm-hmm. would have been. He did show very outward affection to his lovers and his partners and did so openly, dramatically, and frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... I think I read a lot of that in Tom's character. Um, Of course, you know, we don't spend enough time with Tom to figure out if he is gay or not, but Mm -hmm. you definitely get that kind of feeling that 
if this is just Tennessee Williams, then that's sort of on the path of where we're heading. And I know, like, especially me, being queer and in the South, I felt for Tom a lot reading this. And it felt a lot like my own experience of, like, having to leave. I mean, I stayed in the South, but leaving more traditional South and being more of your true self somewhere else. Mm. Absolutely. And I, I, again, going back to his sister a little bit, I mean, you definitely see this fragile, broken, post-lobotomy creature. Yes. Although Laura, there's no indication that she had ever had any kind of lobotomy or anything like that. But the way he describes her as spending almost all of her time, you know, with her glass animals and with her records and Mm -hmm. just having that be the only place that she could go and just having such a visceral reaction to any time she had to be in public or, you know, do anything, you know, coursework wise or anything like that. Right. Sounds like someone with social anxiety. Yes. Sounds like someone with really, really severe social anxiety. Yeah. And which is not introversion. It's not introversion. It's very different. So symbols. Yeah. Let's okay. AP and honor students. We've got you covered. We do have you covered. We do have you covered. So there's going to be some stuff in here that might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think your teachers will enjoy it. They will. (laughs) They will. So at one point in time when Laura and Jim are together, um, they're dancing around the living room and Jim accidentally knocks over Laura's favorite glass animal, which is a unicorn. And they've made so many references to the unicorn being the only one among the horses and being different and being lonesome. And when he is dancing with her, you know, that's more kind of a normal thing. So Laura is getting to have more of a normal life. And then the horn breaks off of the unicorn. Yes. Leaving it just like a normal horse. But it also foreshadows Jim accidentally breaking her heart when he confesses that he's already engaged. It's also a phallic symbol. It is also a phallic symbol. It's also a phallic symbol, and um, that then symbolizes emasculation and uh, uh, sort of a, a death of innocence, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But probably don't put that part in your high school paper, because then they're going to want to talk to you. Yeah, true. Well, depending on your high school. My high school, I would have gotten pulled over. If you're like a senior, you can say phallic symbol. Yes. If you're a junior or in 10th grade, maybe don't. You might, yeah, you might have to see the counselor after that. So another symbol is the entire glass menagerie, which obviously that's what the play is named for. Yes. It's fragile. It's beautiful. It has strange depth and light to shine on it. Yes. It's very much a reference to Laura. Well, it's a reference to the entire family. They're all well. made of glass. They're all fragile. Just some are more resilient than others. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, realistically, it's a metaphor for the entire family. It's a metaphor for all of us. We are all pieces of that glass menagerie. We all stand to be broken and to be uh, dinged up, and we need someone to take care of ourselves, lest we find ways to take care of ourselves and become sentient. Um, it's it's one of those instances where it's a metaphor that isn't subtle, which means I don't like it, but I also can appreciate it. There you go. There's a lot of very unsubtle oh, imagery. Okay. This is 100% <laughs> Tennessee Williams hitting you over the head with a baseball bat. Um, including the fire escape, which is part of the apartment, but it's also Tom's method of escape. And it's in almost every scene. Every scene talks about this fire escape. So it's, it's like Chekhov's gun a little. Oh, yeah. Which I might need to explain what Chekhov's gun is. Go ahead, explain what Chekhov's I forget that we don't necessarily have a film. Of, yeah. <laughs> have a film degree between all of us. Um, so Chekhov's gun is a film thing where if you uh, see a gun more than three times within the length of like a media piece, uh, that gun's going to mean something. And that was based off of a play a by Chekhov, yeah. where the gun is in the initial scene and it is used by the end of the play. Right. So basically, um, you can apply that to anything. So if a book keeps harkening back to a thing, probably important. Also, if you watch Archer, there's a point where they flat out have a Chekhov gun. They do. And they make a reference to it. They do, and they think they're very clever for it. Well, so much of Archer is, let's just put some weird literature references in it and see who gets it. Yeah, including squandering Alton Brown. <laughs> So we also have some that are a little bit less clear, a little bit less obvious. Um, There's a part where Tom goes to, quote, the movies and sees this whole stage production with a magician who is turning water into whiskey 
Mm-hmm. Of what he turns it from water to beer to wine to whiskey, or there's a different version. I can't remember. Yeah. Now, um, and he drinks a liberal portion of this whiskey, um, that very much harkens to the concept of water into wine, Jesus, the Bible, that kind of stuff. Going so far as to there being a trick, where the magician gets out of a coffin that he's been nailed into without breaking apart the coffin. And Tom makes a whole reference about how it's not easy to get out of the coffin without bra- or raising it or breaking it or doing anything like mm-hmm. that with the nails. And a lot of that is how he's trying to figure out how to escape without breaking everything apart for everyone else. Yeah, and I, I sort of admire Tom for that because I know I, I probably had to break a few nails to escape my coffin. What's really scary, too, is Tom is the youngest. He and is. He's... He's very he's like about twenty three. I think his sister's so. twenty four. Yeah. Um, twenty two, twenty three then. Yeah, because Jim is twenty three and they were in the same class. Yeah. So. And it's God, I'm he's old. <laughs> he's been given so much pressure to keep his family intact. I mean, really, his mother steps up to do some work when she's trying to add things to the house, and then she's just selling newspaper or not newspaper. She's selling the like women's journal. Yes. As a she's an early Avon salesman. <laughs> yes. And just her constant, <laughs> constant praise of, oh, you are a Christian martyr. Can we can we talk about the Catholicism? Yes, let's talk about can the Catholicism. Can we please? So I was raised I was raised a Roman Catholic in the South, and the way Tennessee Williams talks about like not just specifically Christian imagery, but Catholic but Catholic imagery, like the Virgin Mary being everywhere, which is very Catholic. Um, the use of Ave Maria, the use of um, you're a martyr. Yes. Which, not that normal Christianity doesn't have martyrs, but Catholics, we are uh, knee-deep in martyrs. There's an entire book of, of martyrs. martyrs. There's a lot of them. Uh, I mean, I, I understand that to many, the Catholic Church is an oppressive force, because it is. Uh, but I do love when it is um, used symbolically. Because there are a lot of symbols that you can use, especially the Virgin Mary, this doting, perfect blank slate of a mom who's just doing her damnedest uh, trying to keep it all together in the face of just horrible tragedy yeah a hundred percent um so the idea that like uh tom and thus tennessee williams frames his mother despite being insufferable still being this uh glorified and sanctified woman i think like i don't know like it kind of inspired me a little bit so going back a little bit into symbols please we talked about Catholic symbols. We did. Um, there is a, a point where Amanda just goes on and on and on and on about these flowers called jonquils. Yes. If you look up jonquils, the other name for them are narcissists. Yes. And who is the most narcissistic person in the play who continues to yell at everybody for being too focused on themselves? Amanda Wingfield. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what's amazing is um, we were we were talking about this before we recorded <laughs> we both said that is the most southern flower that has ever existed mm-hmm. southern women love their narcissist flowers they love roses they love narcissist flowers and you wonder why sometimes and then other times you don't wonder why <laughs> um there is a point where amanda wingfield takes away tom's dh lawrence books and returns it to the library because it is considered to be filth a little backstory on that. D.H. Lawrence in his time was considered to be a pornographer. People yeah. did not enjoy his writing. They thought that he was trying to corrupt the moral order. And part of that goes back into the homosexuality talk. Is it possible that Amanda is rejecting Tennessee Williams or rejecting Tom? Um, that's my... I mean, I would, I would definitely say that. Um, it, that 100% sounds like what it is, is that... It's a rejection of this aspect. But also, as a parent, you never want to see your child grow up. Mm-hmm. And that's an uncomfortable aspect of any person. Like, it's... This is going to sound weird. But it's like when you figure out that your mom has had to, you know, experience pleasures that you are not used to thinking about that. Mm-hmm. The whole, like, you know, Oedipal Electrocomplex thing. So, but at the same time, your parents want to think that about you. Yeah. It's like, sorry, Mom, wouldn't that time we found your copy of The Joy of Sex in the bottom drawer? Right. And then my sister took it to school the next day, even though my mom specifically said the one thing I will ask you not to do right. is that 
I will explain anything you want me to explain, Except but please that. put that away. Right, or like the time that my aunt found all of my boys' love novels. Like, yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, when you're cleaning out your drawers and uh, you're getting ready to move and your family's helping you and they find your toys. Um. Yep. Yep. Take that. that take that deep sip. Take that deep sip. Um, <sighs> Damn you, Ramos! I need more alcohol in this egg cream. <laughs> so going back, there's one more symbol I want to address: the dance hall that's just across the way, just out of reach, but can still be heard, is called the Paradise Dance Hall. So the best place for Tom to hear the music is out on the fire escape, and he is just that close to escaping into paradise. I this feels so Gatsby to me. It's, it's making so, me angry. Yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little terrified for when we go into the Scarlet Letter, and literally it's just a book of symbols being beaten over your head over and over and over again because that's listen, Hawthorne. Listen, Samuel Hawthorne hitting you over the head with a book repeatedly. That's that's how that book feels, though. That's what that book is. It's that's, just every time he comes back from the dead and he hits you with it. So, if you... I'm not saying lazy. If you want to more passively absorb this book there are well this play there are a few different film adaptations that are available the possibly the most famous one is the Catherine Hepburn version Mm -hmm. which has Sam Waterston in it which is hilarious because he's also in the Great Gatsby adaptation from the same time frame he was in everything he was in everything and then Law and Order (laughs) so Catherine Hepburn's portrayal makes Amanda look insane very in unhinged. Yes, that's true. And you'll see a lot of adaptations kind of play her that way, or um, they make her they make her look crazy. Yeah, and um, I th- I think when we finally go into does this play work for you, it doesn't. Not we'll talk about that. But yeah. um, if you've lived in the South, this is this level of histrionicness mm-hmm. of narcissism. It's very uh, normal. Or even, you know, your parents sitting you down and saying, or, you know, your caretaker or whatever going, you need to eat your food like this. You need to do this. This right. is the proper way that society wants you to do right. things. That These are the con- facts that, that I have absorbed. Parents. Yeah. So there is another version, too, with John Malkovich, um, which John Malkovich makes Tom look like the most immature person ever, which he's 23. Yeah. Um, but it also has Karen Allen, a.k.a. Marion from Indiana Jones. But it's one of those weird things where you initially are going, is that, wait. It can't be. It can't be. It's a completely different, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did forget one major symbol. Which symbol? The man of the house. The man of the house. Absolutely. So um, you'll see the framed light up picture of, uh, of Daddy man, Wingfield. Of Daddy Wingfield. Uh, but we don't talk about him because he's terrible. And in Mexico? Yeah, Mazatlan was the yeah, last was, place they received a postcard He's from in him. Mexico, question mark. And um, one of the most savage ways of saying you're done with your family is hello and goodbye. Yeah, I've decided to send you a postcard from where I'm never coming back from. Um, there are a few references in the play where Amanda basically says that he, you know, he worked for the telephone company and mm-hmm. fell in love with long distance and trip, or what, Tom says trip the light fantastic. Yes. Um, and then just... She'll talk a little bit about it when the gentleman caller comes and yeah. then says, oh, let me not trouble you with my tribulations. I hope you have none of your own. Yeah. But I think that's why I had such an issue with playing um, Tom as immature because I've had to step into the role of being your parent's parent. Mm-hmm. And that does something to you. But then to still be infantilized by that person. So that whole conversation where he's not allowed to drink his coffee black, I mm-hmm. felt that in my soul. Like, let this man have his coffee. He's fine. I mean, like, how many different foods does she offer him? It's like... She offers him so many foods. It's like, eat this. No, I want coffee. Eat this. No, I want coffee. At least add cream to it. No, woman. You are not allowed to live your life. Well, he's not allowed to read what he wants to read. He's not allowed to spend time writing. He's not allowed to do anything but bring home money from the warehouse. Right, because he has to be both son and secondary husband, Mm -hmm. which is a difficult tightrope to walk for anyone with grace or dignity. And kind of a creepy image. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. (laughs) 
famous, but it does make him very Christ-like. And we're, I think we're going to end up bringing that up into so many books, how many authors end up making their figure Christ-like. It, I mean, when you think about it, he has to do this great uh, divine sacrifice for all those years, and then he finally gets to go to paradise, which I assume is somewhere across the ocean. Oh. Well, that and it's so many American writers yes. use these images because it's kind of forced upon you from the very beginning. I mean, we have a whole country that swears at separation of church and state, and I mean, I'm religious, but um, how much of our laws have to do with the Bible, the Bible, right? especially out here. But it's also a framing thing, I think, mm-hmm. is that it's easy to see yourself as giving up so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and again, like I think what makes this book difficult for me is kind of coming off of the other side of that, where a lot of what I had to go through in my life is very similar to this book. And now I have years of hindsight behind it, and it's like, okay, that might have been a pain in the moment, but it was not so difficult for you to just eat the bread, eat the toast. If that would have saved you five years of talking to your family, eat the heckin' toast. <laughs> well, then there's the whole part, too, where Amanda basically offers him a way out. She does. Um, a find your sister a husband, find somebody who's going to take care of us, and then you can skip town. I'm going to blackmail my son. Yeah. Which also plays into the... It's, it's a very like weird like Gnostic re- uh, reading of like the Virgin Mary and Jesus, where it's like, you don't have to do this whole crucifixion thing. You're magic. You can you can spear it away up out of here and like just no one's gonna say anything. What's a little crazy too is how much Amanda Wingfield has also given up for her family. Yes. Um, which is basically what happens when you become a parent. But yeah. the fact that she becomes such a Christian martyr about yes. it and just you know that's upset, the frustrating part. Um, and takes that out on her children. Yes, that is that is the frustrating part because I will say. A lot of readings, I think, don't give her enough credit, and that frustrates me. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I mean, it's it's a misogynistic reading of the work mm-hmm. um, to just always play her as histrionic and unhinged and crazy and like purely narcissistic. You almost have to be. You almost have to be that level of narcissistic to survive in a world like Southern society. A Southern society as a single woman with two kids. Exactly. Desperately trying to make you, ends you would have You would have to be that insane to do it. Well, even there's the part where Amanda asks how much Jim O'Connor makes. Yes. And it's more than Tom makes. And she's like, well, that's not enough to raise a family on. It's not. It's not. Yeah, yeah. what Tom is bringing is not enough to right. keep them afloat even. And, and, you know, people read that as like, oh, well, you know, Southern gold diggers. But she's not wrong, though. She's not. She's trying to find a way to get her kids to be safe and secure yeah that's all she's ever wanted she's going about it wrong yes absolutely like, i'm not i'm not saying she's a saint i will not make a christian martyr out of her no but this might be the fact that you know we're two slytherins sitting in a room <laughs> i after drinking gin uh i don't see her as this beast that a lot of uh writers like to make it sound like she is right. and that frustrates the heck out of me and I mean, so much of it is, I mean, probably our upbringings too of... Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was raised by a single mom who came from a very Southern household. I mean, my grandparents were from Tennessee and Arkansas. Yeah. Oh. And, um, yeah. That's and, really South. And I mean, I, my dad, rest his soul, um, was a very complicated man. Mm-hmm. And my mom and him just obviously did not get along. Oh, this is so personal. Yeah. Anyway, but I grew up with that. Um, phrase, you can fall in love with a rich man just as easy as you can fall in love with a poor man. That is true. <laughs> that is... Do you remember that uh, horrifying Don Bluth movie, Thumbelina? Yes. Uh, where it's that weird uh, frog uh, burlesque charo dancer. Okay, I forgot that part, but now it's coming back. <laughs> and I think I had lost that And then out. also uh, the mouse who's trying to get her to marry the mole yes. because of money. That, yeah, I mean... We, we, we say that's horrible and anti-feminist now, but I mean, also not false. Right. Sometimes you just got to marry the mole. And a lot of times, you know, where our parents come from or our guardians come from is the 
this is what I've had to live through. This is what I've seen my friends have to live through. This is what my friends' kids have had to live through. I don't want that for you. Yes. Let me do everything I can to try and prevent you from being in pain. But but I also have damage, so I'm going to do this in all of the ways that I was taught, which is still wrong. And our parents are human. We're human. Mine weren't. I was raised by demons. You were raised by (laughs) demons. Kidding. Um, and I think that's one of the things you don't necessarily see when you're reading this in high school is yes. your parents are human beings who have lived through their own lives right. and had their own tragedies, their own misfortunes, their own great moments that they're going to keep reliving with you. Right. And then as you get older and reread it, you go, oh, yeah, that's right, because I lived through my 20s. Right. And um, to, to, yeah, to get to the part of did this work for us in high school? Um, it worked for me seeing things through Tom's eyes because I felt that a lot in high school. I felt horribly stifled and all those things. And even now as a year old, uh, who's just now had a few years removed from, uh, my family, I see Amanda in more of a sympathetic light because honestly, if you read this and you read Amanda Wingfield, that's like my aunt and my mom in one person. It's my aunt, my mom, my grandma. All in one person, which sounds horrifying, but it's true. That is who I was raised by, essentially, uh, with slightly better circumstances. So it's, it's it was almost harder to read this again because it's it didn't feel like a play. It, it's why I can't watch Tyler Perry movies. <laughs> it's like this is just my family reunion with more attractive people. It's true. I'm just like picturing that now. Well, like it's it's a, it's a common criticism of Tyler Perry of if you're of color, which I am of color, uh, that black people don't see Tyler Perry movies. It's a mostly, it's a very uh, white friendly version of blackness, uh, and black people don't see his movies because that's just our existence. I don't need to see it. We all have that family reunion with the aunt who's too loud and the light skinned cousin that you know everyone makes fun of and the matriarch who's probably about a thousand years old and is disappointed in every choice you've made. Isn't it weird, too, how sometimes the matriarch in your family will be disappointed in all your choices, even though those are the choices they asked you to make? Yeah. No, 100%. I, I struggled with that a lot, uh, moving out and getting to you on my own. It's like, well, you moved away. It's like, isn't that what you wanted? It's like, yes, but no. <laughs> You're like, so you're mad that I figured out my life. And I did exactly what you wanted me to do, and I did it, and now you're angry. The South. (laughs) Southern parenting in a nutshell. Meanwhile, all our listeners in California are laughing. I'm sorry, Yankee listeners. (laughs) I'm sorry that you were raised on a, you know, wheat grass and chia seed. So I just recently found out, and this kind of has nothing to do with anything, so I apologize. Evidently, people in Savannah don't read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and don't watch the movie. They just refer to it as the book. Yeah, I can see that. My husband's from Savannah and I go, well, have you ever seen the movie? And he goes, no, why would I watch the movie? Right. Yeah. So I do think it's interesting reading. I think this would be great if you are a Yankee. If you've never been, if you want a good distillation of Southern culture, this and um, BoJack Horseman, surprisingly. (laughs) Well, no, his mother, Beatrice, is Amanda Wingfield. I'm not kidding. <laughs> just histrionic and insane and manipulative and bitter. And it's either watch BoJack Horseman or read this or do both and be really sad and need a drink. Definitely need a drink. So that's kind of what we did anyway. That is exactly what we, we did We made anyways. a drink. There's no kind of. We made a drink. So I do want to say thank you for a little bit of source material here. Mm-hmm. Um Thank you to, there's a podcast called Close Reads that did a lot of really good research. Um, They tend to take plays and books and go a little bit farther in depth um, than you probably will get in your regular high school courses or um, just reading it on your own. Yes. Also, I did reference a book called Follies of God. Bear with me one second. I'm going to get you the actual name. I did not save it. Um, James Grissom. So just a fun little story in this, this book. Um, at one point in time, James Grissom wrote a letter to Tennessee Williams and included some of his own writing. And Tennessee Williams called him out of the blue, and his mom answered, um, James' mom answered the phone and said, "This guy is calling and saying he's Tennessee Williams. There's no way that's true. Do you want to take the call?" He answers the call, 
And Tennessee Williams tells him, come and have lunch with me at the Court of Two Sisters. And he goes, yeah, I'm 80 miles away from you. And Tennessee Williams responds, well, then you better drive fast. God dang it, Uncle Tennessee. (laughs) Why are you like this? The beginning of the book, um, and it's, it's a true story, is about them, you know, having lunch at the Court of Two Sisters and Tennessee Williams talking about his um, his ladies and the, the the women that he worked with and things like that and just kind of him trying to access what he called the fog and just figure out, you know, what his next step would be in writing and how he had tried so hard to just jog that writing process and um, just the different women in his life and what they meant to him and those interviewing those women including a few actresses that were um, were lesbians at a time where, you know, you didn't really talk about that. Yeah. So are we still sticking with our next book? I think it's important to do so, but I think it will punish the both of us. So at the risk to our mental health, especially with this political climate right now. We're um, reading 1984. 1984, George Orwell. Get ready to get properly schooled on how to use words like Orwellian. Oh God, I remember having to try and learn that in high school. Yeah, I I have I have a lot of feelings about when people use that word incorrectly. Or Kafka esque. Kafka esque, which is funny because I have a Kafka esque shirt. <laughs> yep, it wasn't funny. It was intentional. <laughs> intentional. All right, my loves. Well, that is it for us this week. Unless it you was. have anything. I'm good. Uh, Say something nice to your mom if she's still with you. Or, you know, go visit her. Absolutely. Give her a hug. And understand that she is a complex human creature who's doing the best that she can. Tell her you know that she's doing the best that she can. Even if she isn't. And with that, have a great week. Go read a book. Bye.